0: Amen. Man, y'all came to sing this morning. Golly, that's pretty good. Um, hey, I'm glad you're with us. My name's Jonathan. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, wasn't it so great having Thomas back last week? He said to me afterwards, That's exhausting. I need another sabbatical. So we're going to give him another four months. And no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, Thomas said something last week that was so good, I wrote it in my notes, and then I underlined it twice. Uh, And I don't know if you remember this, but it was just like a a little comment that he made, but man, I thought, gosh, that's, that's profound. He said this, identity answers the question, who am I? But dignity answers the question, what am I worth? And I always love to remind you of this, what we believe about every person, about their dignity on earth is that they were created in the image of God and nothing done against them, nothing that they do could ever obscure the fact that they bear the image of God no matter what, and that they are deeply loved by God. And that gives every person enormous worth, enormous value, and enormous dignity. And I just want to remind you that right up front this morning, that you are worth a ton. You're worth so much and I'm glad you're here with us. Uh, We've been in this series in the book of Exodus all month and we're calling it a journey from slavery to home. And we're looking at these kind of dual realities of slavery, that there's this external slavery which is what the people of God experienced, where there's oppression and there's exploitation and all that sort of stuff, but there's also this internal reality of slavery, this thing that we all carry around with us, no matter what the external reality is. It's the bondage that we have to sin and to brokenness, and when God sees slavery of any kind, He moves towards it. He is a God who redeems. He is a God who rescues. That is the story of Exodus, and that's our story too. In these last couple weeks, we've been looking at this character of Moses, who obviously is going to be a really important part of this Exodus story. Um, But we're seeing this, that God has to do some things inside of Moses before he can really step into all that God has for him to do. And so God's beginning to do that, and we're going to pick up right where Thomas left off last week in Exodus 3. God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and he's going to tell him a plan, Um, and that's where we're going to start. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, and this this may not be something you even connect with, but hearing the story of Moses, you know what it's reminded me of? Like every superhero movie I've ever seen, Um, It's a superhero origin story. I don't know if you know what that is, but if you watch superhero movies, you know they they follow the same narrative structure, and this is like a very old narrative structure, and it's the story of Moses. It follows that same structure too, and it basically goes like this. Moses comes from nothing into power. He steps into a problem to fix it, and then this is important, he fails at fixing it, so he goes into exile, and then circumstances are going to bring him back around to the same problem, this time with a new approach to it, and he's going to have some success. Now, I don't know if you've realized it, but that is the basic outline of the beginning of every superhero movie ever made. Like, it's the same formula, and it's really compelling. There's a lot of stories that are kind of based off of this, and maybe that's why our society is so obsessed with this idea of superheroes. Out of curiosity, how many of you have seen a superhero movie? Gosh, that's darn near all of us, Um, right? I mean, There's a a formula to these movies, but you you know what I'm talking about. They're all the same structure, but despite that, despite the fact that they're all the same, like they're exactly the same, I still go see them. There's something about it that's compelling and it's entertaining, and it it got me thinking, so I did a little bit of research. I got on the Googler, and I uh, typed in some things. Uh, If you just take one category of superhero movies, just to prove the point how obsessed we are with this, let's just take Marvel superhero movies. So in the last 10 years, there's been 20 of these movies. That's like Iron Man, Spider-Man, The Avengers, all those sorts of movies. Uh, It started back in 2008 with Iron Man, and there's been 20 movies since then. Those 20 movies have grossed a combined 6.8 billion, with a B, dollars. 6.8 6.8 billion dollars. Now that's just superhero movies from the Marvel Universe. If you had like the DC Universe, then it's 6.8 billion and one dollars. Um, <laughs> that joke is so nerdy. I thought it wasn't going to work, but some of y'all. Um, where was I? So I, listen, for some perspective, that number, if, if the Marvel Universe was a country and that was its GDP, It would be third in the world, right behind the U.S., China, and then the Marvel universe in terms of economies. Uh, That's not even considering all the merchandising, all the pay-per-view, all that sort of stuff. If you just take one movie from this franchise, let's just take Black Panther, which was this year. It's still actually making money at the box office, right? Black Panther would be the 21st largest economy in the world. Like that's, uh, Wakanda's doing all right, you know? Um... (laughs) I don't want to jump to conclusions when I say that our world is obsessed with superheroes, but it feels like the numbers would bear this out. We are obsessed with this idea of superheroes. These stories, they resonate with us on a deep, almost spiritual level, certainly an emotional level. And I think that was true even 3,500 years ago when Exodus was written. You know, I think we all live with this awareness that the world is not as it should be. And we have this longing that someone would make it right. And that awareness and that longing are kind of central to that narrative. Superhero movies are a lot of fun. It's the same formula. But they basically, they tap into that longing. Here is the problem that I see. When you live in a world that is obsessed with superheroes, it becomes really hard to believe that an ordinary person could ever change things. Right. And we are all so very ordinary, aren't we? It's really hard sometimes to believe that ordinary people can change things, and when we read a guy like Moses, when we read his story, it is tempting to read this story from a distance in the same way we would watch a superhero movie. After all, this is a guy who was raised in a palace, he had God appear to him, God spoke to him, God did miraculous things through him, he did miracles, he had a staff, he probably had a costume of some sort. He seems a little bit like a superhero, and it's easy to distance ourselves from him, But what we're going to discover today is this, and I think it's so important. Moses is as ordinary as you and I are. He has all the struggles of a normal person. And maybe, actually, the the point of the story is not, here's this incredible guy with all these great powers. But maybe the point of the story is this, that God is waiting for, and the world needs ordinary people who just say yes to God. Yeah? Not superheroes. That's not what the world needs. God only ever calls the ordinary person. And while superhero movies borrow from stories like Moses, Moses is not a superhero story. So I want to walk through the next part of this and prove that to you. Turn in your Bible to Exodus 3.16. Let's consider the ordinariness of Moses. See if it doesn't remind you of yourself. So we left off with this. God had just reminded Moses who he was, who his identity is, and now God is going to tell Moses the plan. He says, hey, I've got something, we're going to do this together, and he's going to lay out the plan, and what I love about this is you can almost hear it in the text, how excited God is about this. This is a God who cares about external slavery. He is a God who sets the oppressed free, and he's got this plan. He's seen the oppression of his people, and he's about to lay this out to this guy Moses. Listen to what he says, Exodus 3 verse 16. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is what God does. He rescues and he redeems, and you can hear the excitement. It's like as if God has just been dying to tell someone, like he's been seeing this whole drama unfold, and it's like he's leaning over the edge of heaven, and he's like, Moses, Moses, come here, listen to what we're going to do. You won't believe what we're going to do. And he's got this guy, and he's listening to him, and he says, let me tell you, look at verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. That's the plan. Sounds pretty cool, right? I mean, it sounds great, and then not only that, he's like, As if that's not good enough, y'all are out of slavery, guess what else I'm going to do? And I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that whenever, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you'll put on your sons and daughters, and so you'll plunder the Egyptians." So not only is God going to get them out of Egypt, but he's going to get them out of Egypt with, like, all the money that they ever could want. Like, just, they're going to give it to them, is how this is going to work. Now, we'll get to Moses in just a second. I I just want to pause and observe something here about God. I don't know how you feel about this idea that God gets excited about stuff. I don't know if you've ever thought that. Does God get excited about stuff? I know sometimes, like, we prefer to think of God as very dignified and very solemn like he's up in heaven with his like, very well-pressed, ironed robes, um, you know, watching Ken Burns' documentaries on PBS, and uh, you know, sipping Earl Grey tea, and just quietly shaking his head at all the shenanigans that happen down here on earth. And sometimes we think of God as like that distant, very dignified God, and maybe God is like that, I don't know. But could we just consider for a second that he's not? Could we just consider... And consider the implications that God does, in fact, get excited about stuff on this earth. That the Trinitarian God we serve, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that He is actually a God full of divine energy and passion. And if Jesus is the face of God, then we would have to consider that God is, in fact, eager and He is excitable. He's a God who marvels at things, who is impressed by things. He gets fired up about things, and nothing thrills His heart more than this idea of redemption and rescue of people. And if God's like that, the sort of God who gets excited, then I I think we need to consider that he's like that with you. There's things about you that he gets excited about. And that this picture of God, like leaning over the edge of heaven, saying, Moses, Moses, guess what we're going to do today? That maybe that picture applies to you, and that he's leaning over the edge of heaven looking at you. Maybe there's something in your life that he is excited to do with you, and maybe he is as excited to do that thing with you as he was to do that thing with Moses. What would it mean to you if you believed that God had this intense, passionate excitement about rescue and redemption for stuff around you, and that that plan involved you, and that when you wake up in the morning, he's not shaking his head, but he's actually like, finally! Finally! Guess what we're going to do today? Like, what would it do to you if you thought God viewed you that way? Let me be honest. There's a part of that that, like, really excites me. Um, But if I am totally honest, there's a part of that that's just kind of disruptive. There's a part of this idea of God having an eagerness and an excitement to involve me in his plans that, honestly, it just feels like a lot of work sometimes, you know? Sometimes I just, I'd rather have the stuffy God up in heaven sipping tea and not really fired up about anything. And I, you know, I don't think I'm alone in that. I'm, I, I bet you felt that. I think we all feel that at times. And here's the thing, Moses, just like us ordinary people, he felt that exact same thing. Look at Exodus 4. God's, he's laid out this amazing plan. Really, all Moses has to do, this is all God asks of him, is just show up right? Just show up. Do what I tell you to do. Just show up. Believe it. Show up. But instead of that, what Moses does is he hits God with three excuses. Three reasons why this is never going to work. I don't think we should do it. Look at how he responds. Exodus 4 verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me? Or listen to me. Or say the Lord didn't appear to you. That's how Moses sounded. It's a... And <laughs> when you're a pastor, you learn things like that. Just trust me. He says, what if they don't believe me? That's the first excuse. Moses says, I don't think this is going to work. And basically what he's saying is this. This problem, it seems too big to me. I don't know. Uh, what if no one listens to me? What if no one believes me? God, what if none of the stuff you said would happen actually happens? Have you ever had uh, like a great idea and you brought it to someone and like, they're like, interesting, here are the things wrong with it, right? Do you have that friend who can just find the, the small problem with anything? That's Moses. And let me remind you, God has appeared to him in a burning bush God is speaking to him out of this fire, telling him this plan, and Moses is like, he's folding his arms and he's like, I don't know, did you really think this through? I mean, that sounds pretty far fetched, Lord. That's Moses. But God is patient. <laughs> Look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. This has to be, listen, I don't know if this is intended to be a joke, but this is like the best practical joke ever. He's like, you doubt my plan? Hey, what are you holding there? (laughs) It's a snake. Ah, you know. (laughs) I thought it was funny. Um, I don't think God is intending to joke here. But it says, the Lord says to him, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he says. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe those two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So this is pretty good, right? God's like, look at all this stuff I can do. And all of these signs, by the way, would have connected to some of the spirituality of the people of Egypt. And so they would have been very powerful signs for the people who observed them. And God's like, listen, this is going to work. I got this under, look at, look at what I can do just to prove that it's me who has sent you, but Moses is not done with his excuses. Moses said to the Lord, verse 10, pardon your, ser- I'm not going to do the voice the whole time. Pardon-, <laughs> pardon your servant, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So the first thing he says to God in response to this plan is, hey, Lord, this problem seems too big. No one's going to believe me. And God says, well, here's what we'll do. Moses says, okay, but what about this? I am too small to pull this thing off, is his second excuse. I don't talk so good, and you need someone who talks really good. That's not me. Maybe you should find someone more equipped to do this. I love how God responds. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God says to Moses, listen, I gave you your mouth. I made it. I invented the power of speech. I invented listening. So don't tell the God who created you what you're capable of, is what God says to Moses. He says, I made every part of you, and I made it for a reason, so let's go. But Moses is not done. He's still not convinced, and he pulls out this last excuse, which honestly, I think I really think probably this is the real issue for Moses. I think those other two things, like maybe he meant them, he had those fears, but I really think it boiled down to what he is about to say here in verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. He says, listen, God, here's the thing. I, I don't want to. I, I, just, I just don't. I, well, how about this? Why don't I keep doing the things that I want to do, and you can go be God somewhere else? I just don't want to. Find someone else. I don't want to get sucked into your plan of rescue and redemption of these people. I just, I just don't want to. Verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron? the Levite. I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. He'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I'll help both of you speak and teach you what to do. He'll speak to the people for you, and it'll, it'll be as if uh, he were your mouth and as if you were God to him, but take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. You know, this story, it kind of makes me sad for God, right? I mean, he, he, here's God, and he's like really excited, he sees this problem, he's like, I'm going to fix this, I've got all the power, I, listen, I'm going to make this thing right, and he finds this ordinary person, and he's like, Moses, guess what, I want to use you to do this amazing thing, come on, it's going to be great, and by the end of the story, God is like, fine, fine, if I talk your brother into going with you, will you just go do it? It's sad. It's sad that God has done all this. He miraculously appeared to Moses. He's thought through this whole plan. He did miracles to Moses and through him, and now he's just like, I, I don't know. If your brother goes, will you go? Um, it, it reminds me of uh, comedian Dana Carvey. He tells the story about he took his family, including his teenage son, on a European vacation to Rome Um, And he's like standing at the Colosseum and geeking out on history. It's like 2,000 years of human history. They're standing on another continent. And his teenage son walks up to him and goes, so uh, is this all we're going to do today? (laughs) 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 I mean, that's Moses, right? He's like an 80-year-old teenager. And he is totally unfazed and unimpressed. And he's just, God's like, fine, what if I talk your brother into going? Could we do it then? And I wonder, I wonder how many times God has this experience, where the excitement of a God who rescues and redeems collides with the wet blanket of human excuses. I wonder how often that happens to God. God, this problem is way too big. God, I am too small. You made me inadequate for this problem, and honestly, I just don't want to. Could you just find somebody else? I just don't want to. Bother someone else. Can I tell you the truth? This world, it doesn't need superheroes. What this world needs, honestly, is just ordinary people who stop listening to their own excuses That's what the people of God needed in Exodus, just ordinary people who stop listening to their their own excuses. That's what the world needs. The, The problem is too big, but when ordinary people start to believe that their God is bigger than the problem that they're facing, that's even better than superhero powers. I'm too small, but when ordinary people start to believe that whatever it is they have, no matter how little, God gave it to them for a purpose, that's even better than superpowers. And listen, I know, I, I know all of us, we have all sorts of stuff we want to do in our lives and we don't want to be bothered, we don't want to be distracted and disrupted and all that sort of stuff, but when ordinary people hear the excitement of God and step into it and move towards it, it's better than superpowers. That's what the world needs. In our superhero-obsessed world, and none of us really believe this, but we're kind of like just hopeful that someone would step in and fix this mess, What we actually need is the opposite of a superhero. We need ordinary people who stop listening to their own excuses and step into God's plan to help others. And when ordinary people do that, they become extraordinary in a way that's far better and honestly quite a bit safer than being bitten by a radioactive spider. Right? Here's the thing. Um, it's not only good for the world, as if that wasn't enough when we do that, but honestly, it's good for us too. Let me share with you kind of the collective wisdom of all of the leaders of this church. This is the stuff that we believe, that we talk about behind closed doors. This is where we're going as a church. This is the stuff that we desperately want us all to be on the same page about and to believe and to embrace. And it's simply this, serving is central to discipleship. That's where we're going. Serving is central to discipleship, and what that means is if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to become like Jesus, if you want to experience the abundant life that we were all intended for, if you want to leave behind slavery and find your home in God, if you want to be transformed, if you want to be rescued, if you want to be redeemed, if you want all of that stuff that we talk about, then there is nothing more important to you than to say yes to God's plan to rescue and redeem others, and to step in and serve with Him. And here's the thing, spiritual growth is not a result of frequent church attendance. It's not like the more services you go to, the more spiritually mature you get. That's not how it works. It's not even the result of like reading your Bible all the time. And Don't freak out, stay with me. It's not even the result of reading your Bible. I know horrible people, like miserable people who are mean to everyone, and they don't skip a daily devotion right? Think about this. Satan has been reading the Bible for thousands of years. He knows it far better than you and I ever will by the time we die. I'm not saying don't read your Bible. Read your Bible, please. Read your Bible. It's important to read your Bible. You should study the Bible, but it is not studying the Bible that makes us like Jesus. It is acting like Jesus that makes us like Jesus. It is living like he lived that makes us like Jesus, That was his plan for his disciples, and that is his plan for us. This is true. Most of us know way more about Jesus than we will ever successfully live out in our lives, right? I I passed that point years ago. I just, I know more about the guy than I could ever implement in my life. And yet we just, I, I don't know about you, I just chase more. It's like more info, more theology, more facts, there's this shift that happens when we say, listen, I'm going to stop trying to acquire knowledge about Jesus, and I'm going to focus on living out the knowledge that I already have. And it doesn't mean you have to stop acquiring knowledge, but there's a shift in focus that says, I am going to focus on living out the knowledge that I already had. And here's the thing, all of us know stuff about Jesus that we could live out, and the stuff that I know about Jesus, I've forgotten stuff about Jesus that I need to be living out and I'm not. And there's a shift that happens when we start acting like him. And uh, more than anything else, what will determine the trajectory of our spiritual lives is when we allow that to be the organizing truth in our lives and service becomes central to our discipleship process. I'm going to get involved in what I know God is doing on the earth. When that becomes what our life is about, something extraordinary happens in us. So the question, the question, is just what is God asking you to step into? When God leans over the edge of heaven and says, hey, guess what we're gonna do today? What's he excited about? What are those things he wants to involve you in? You know, if you've never heard the audible voice of God speaking out of a burning bush, which I haven't, and I'm gonna assume that most of you have not as well, it can be a little bit hard to know sometimes what he wants you to step into. Let me tell you what I've learned from this church. I've been here for quite a long time, um, and I've, I've watched you people, and I've learned a lot from you people. There are so many people at Pulpit Rock Church who they just, day in, day out, they step into acts of service, stepping into God's plan with others. Uh, this church, honestly, like no other church I know, this church serves, which I love. And I think, honestly, that's why uh, there, there's a lot of spiritual health at this place. Um, People don't listen to their excuses. That's inspiring. But here's what I've learned watching you people. There are burning bushes everywhere. There are burning bushes everywhere. You just have to notice them. I think sometimes we, I know I I do this, we become passive and we kind of have this posture with God. Hey, Lord, let me know if you need me. Um, Hey, give me a sign. Send me a burning bush if you need me but I I really think that mindset is just an elaborate excuse in my heart I think what God would say to us is I've already let everyone know I don't know how much clearer I can make it now I, I could prove this to you biblically there's not a lot of time for that so just trust me on this the reality is this the burning bush that Moses saw. God has put that burning bush inside the heart of every believer It is always with us. That's why when the Holy Spirit descends on the church in acts, what is it that appears above their heads? A tongue of fire. There's a flame that appears above their head. The Holy Spirit inside of us allows every moment for us to be a burning bush moment. We just need to look around and ask, God, what do you want to redeem and rescue around me today? God, what would the world look like around me if you reigned through Jesus Christ, your son, today? And that is a question that every believer can answer, that he has given us the insight to answer that. We just have to overcome our excuses and step into it. So the other day, my son Truman, um, he's 12, he was playing Xbox Live, which is like you play with your friend who's at another house, and there's like a headset where you talk to each other and you play a video game. Um, So he's playing with his friend. And he, his friend, there was a few things he said, and he, he started to suspect that his friend was really upset, really struggling. But you're playing a video game, so it's hard to tell. But uh, they finished playing, and he texts his friend, and then he called him, and he talks to him for a while. Come to find out, his friend has been experiencing some pretty intense bullying at his new school. Um, and I know this because Truman comes up to, to me and my wife, Becky, and says, hey, Mom, Dad, I, I, I have this friend. He's struggling with this thing. I would love to just have him over to spend the night because he just seems so unhappy, and I want to try to cheer him up. He's struggling. I'm sad for him. Can I do that? And so, of course, as a parent, you're like, yes, of course. How can we make this happen? So we, we have him over. We make sure it's big fun. Truman is 12. Now, I know this. He would not describe what, uh, th- this story in the same way that I am about to describe it. He wouldn't use any of this language, but this is what he did. He looked around and he felt in his soul the awareness that the world was not as it should be. He just intuitively knew that. That when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, sixth graders are not going to be made fun of for things they cannot control about themselves. True? And he saw that and he recognized it. He stepped into it. And he said, hey, if if this happens, at the very least, they should have a safe place where they can be encouraged, where they can have fun, where they could be helped to feel normal again. Now, that's absolutely something God is eager and excited to do on earth. But what blows me away about that story is he's playing Xbox and he saw a burning bush. It was in his friend's struggle. And what he didn't do was this. He didn't see his friend struggling and say, Lord, Lord. If you want me to step into this, send me a sign, right? The struggle that he saw was the sign. The struggle was the burning bush for him. That is the burning bush for us. We just need to set aside our excuses in that moment and act. Let me tell you about another group doing this. Um, This is something I've been watching for about a year, and it's extraordinary. It blows my mind. It's ordinary people who are just looking around and saying, yes, we said... Uh, Some stuff about Care Portal last week. You'll notice on your seats, there's cards about Care Portal. And if you go out those doors, there's a table where you can sign up for Care Portal. It is a very simple thing. If you have a willingness to help and an email address, then you can sign up for this and you will get in your inbox specific needs for real families in Colorado Springs who are in trouble and just need a little bit of help. Over the last year, we've had about 60 people doing this, Um, 60 just Totally ordinary people looking around, thinking, hey, God, you're sending burning bushes all the time. What do you want to redeem and rescue today? And do you want to know what they've done in that time? This, this blows me away. They, so we filled 130 requests in about a year, helping over 260 children. And the donated resources in terms of dollars and resources that have been donated to these families totals 88 Thousand $88, dollars $88,000 in a year. I've met these people. None of them have capes that I know of. They don't wear masks. I don't know that they would look particularly good in tights. That's judgy. I don't know that. They've, maybe they would. <laughs> My point is, they're not superheroes, Right? They've never seen a literal burning bush with the voice of God talking out of it, saying, Help this needy family. They're just ordinary people who looked around and they saw a struggle and they recognized it as a burning bush moment. It was their burning bush, so they set aside their excuses and they got involved. I know you have excuses, I do too. The problems are really big, we are really small. And most of the time, I just don't want to. It's really easy to channel the voice of Moses, and I'm, I'm beating him up today. Moses is going to get it. Like, he's going to turn the corner here. But he's going to struggle with overcoming these excuses in his life for the rest of his life. And we do too. Hear me when I say this to you. You are exactly what God had in mind when he created you. And I want you to, I want you to picture this. Picture God leaning over the edge of heaven leaning into your life with that same sort of excitement and that same sort of passion, and he is just dreaming of the day that you will say yes to his ideas. And he's saying, oh, you're up? Oh, good. I've got some stuff that I thought we could do today. And his favorite thing is when you say, oh, okay, let's go do that, Lord. Could you believe that no matter how big the problem seems, that God is, in fact, bigger? Could you believe that you see the problems in this world that, that, that because God has revealed them that that is the burning bush moment for you? Could you believe that you have a mouth and God gave you that mouth for a reason? Could you believe that if God wanted superheroes, if God wanted there to be certain humans with special abilities that are better than the rest of us, he could have made that. He's capable. If he wanted superheroes, he could have made them, but instead he made you. And all he's ever wanted was ordinary people who say yes. Could you believe that the life you in fact want is on the other side of saying yes to getting involved, helping others? Listen, I've spent so many years spinning my wheels in my spiritual life before I realized this. There is no growth apart from service. There just isn't. Jesus didn't live that way. There's no growth apart from service. You become like Jesus by acting like Jesus, not by learning about him. I promise you, he's shown you things that you can act on. So picture this. Picture God leaning over the edge of heaven, excited to find an ordinary person just like you. Now, what are you going to do with him today? Let's pray. God, it's overwhelming sometimes to think about your passion to work with us, your passion to involve us in, in your rescue and your redemption of this place, of every corner of this world. It overwhelms our hearts sometimes, but God, we trust that even that you see. God, we want to be people who say, yes, show us the struggles of others that you want us to step into. And let us say yes, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.